0: We're live. That was my Logan impression. It was awful. Spot on. Absolutely.
1: Well, we got a a few people in the chat, Fa of the Qtube family, Hunky Vape. Thanks, guys, for chiming in uh, and getting to the top of the leaderboard. Uh, And for all of you uh, watching at home, watching on the replay, thank you for tuning in. Uh, We will have a conversation here with Professor Jerry Stimson coming up. Uh, But first, uh, hey, Kristen, how you doing?
0: Hi, <laughs> I'm <good>. I'm hanging <laughs> in there. We made it, but I have to make sure I'm just right now I'm looking for the rundown bumper because I don't want to forget it.
1: <laughs> Excellent.
0: Excellent.
1: <laughs> Peggy at, at Source, thanks for chiming in. Uh, I'm doing okay. Just had a long week. Just got back from e-cigarette Summit in D.C. Yeah. Uh, there was a Taxpayers Protection Alliance panel the day after. Um, a lot of good conversations, a lot of good presentations, a lot of thoughtful stuff. Uh, and some really good feedback also about this program here. I uh, had a couple people walk up to me and say uh, that they people, folks I didn't expect uh, walking up and saying that they were, were watching this and they really appreciated oh, nice it job. and they thought we were doing a good job. Uh, so okay. really glad that this can be a useful resource for people, not just, not just our consumer members, but folks in, in, in the research and policy space. Um, yeah. so, um, thanks really for showing up and, <laughs> and I will put that mild pitch in there for folks. You know, if you do find this resource useful, um, please visit our site and also visit our donate button. Um, that's, uh, your, your contributions help us do this every other week, um, in, in perpetuity or as long as we are necessary. So, um, <clears throat> want to try to keep, be efficient with our time here. And, uh, I think I will get right into the legislative rundown.
0: I'll do the thing
1: fantastic. We didn't even let it finish. Um, (laughs) In the spirit of abbreviated things here. um, (laughs) uh, I will, uh, this is going to be really quick. We have two states kind of flaring up as we go through the weekend. Um, Louisiana, uh, which is looking at a flavor ban. Um, This has been amended uh, and I now I think it's a pmta registry bill which is uh for those who are unfamiliar sort of uh states signing up to do the fda's work for them they become the enforcement arm of federal regulations uh, and this is actually an amendment that is being pushed by a company uh and an active website in- just Wait, dropped- you're
0: breaking up you're breaking up it's, it's being it's being pushed by a what
1: uh it is being pushed by a tobacco company oh. Uh, And this was recently called out in Maine, which is the other engagement that we have up, Uh, Maine uh, LD 1215, uh, moved over to the Senate, I believe. And uh, so we're waiting to see what the next hearing will be on that bill. Um, But uh, it was called out as as an amendment straight from R.J. Reynolds. Uh, And it's, again, a PMTA registry bill um, that would make Maine the enforcer of FDA rules um, so those are, are our, calls to action that are on fire this weekend. Uh, if you live in Louisiana or Maine, please get involved. I know Maine, we could really use some more engagement, uh, sparsely populated state, but, um, still, uh, if you got friends and family in Maine, let them know, send them to casaw.org and tell them to get involved. Take so that. with that, I think <laughs> we can rifle right into the main content of the day.
0: All right, let's bring them in.
1: I told you it'd be quick. (laughs) Hi. (laughs) Hi. So welcome. Thank you, professor, Jerry Simpson, for, for joining us on, on a Saturday evening, your time. Well,
2: it's great to be on the, the show. Thank you for asking me. I've got a great lot. I've got a very fondly, fond feeling for Kazar because it, I think you were probably the first consumer advocacy group globally and, Probably the the biggest and the most active. So it's a real pleasure to be talking to you both tonight.
1: Fantastic. Well, it's a it's a privilege to have you on. And um, and I, I think we'll, we'll we'll get right into it. Want to be respectful of your time um, for folks who are, are not familiar with you or your work. Um, it's it's always best to kind of leave the introduction up to you guys. Um, but in particular, you know, the, my my uh, other than your background is. Um, you know, coming from harm reduction, a lot of experience in harm reduction yeah. on other issues. And yeah, sure. one of the things that you talk about in your article is sort of that, uh, um, that a bit of a shock or disappointment at, you know, people who you worked with on, on those issues being somewhat resistant or just outright rejecting harm reduction for tobacco. So maybe, and, you know, giving us a bit of your background and also, I, I think, talking about your experiences with, with people's reaction to, to THR.
2: Yeah well the filter article was really a kind of a look back at 10 years of tobacco harm reduction and some of the highs and some of the lows and some of the disappointments but also trying to be optimistic about the the, the future. Um, it's a bit difficult to summarize my, my work prior to THR but although a lot of it makes make sense I mean I, I, I've got five decades of work which is a wow. bit embarrassing to mention and wow. I was I was in the kind of harm reduction field in different ways I'm an, I'm an academic social scientist most of my work has been in the public health arena and mostly on drug use uh, serious addiction problems and, and so on and so forth so before coming to the THR space I've got a lot of experience in in drugs harm reduction, although um, it wasn't called that until 1987. That word harm reduction was first invented with respect to drugs by a mate of mine called Russell Newcomb in 1987. Uh, But going right back, the first job I had as a researcher was doing work with people who were getting prescriptions for pharmaceutical heroin heroin addicts in London, and we had a clinic system where some people were getting pharmaceutical heroin there's a long history of that in in, in the u k others you know, were getting methadone and so on so i i um, with, with a colleague of mine we we interviewed um, about a third of the people at clinics in London who were getting heroin pharmacy, pure pharmaceutical heroin on prescription to inject now. Some of them, not all of them, some of them managed very well on that. They led pretty ordinary, even rather dull lives because they're, they're kind of quite managed lives. So that you know that's harm reduction, and that goes back actually a long way in the UK with the prescribing of heroin. Jump forward to the mid '80s, uh, the UK realised, as other countries did, that there was a new disease going around, HIV, AIDS, and there were many vulnerable populations, including people who inject drugs. So I was still doing research, I was doing academic teaching as well, but I was called in by the UK government, one of the first to decide to give free needles and syringes to people who are injecting. Very smart move. Actually first, Suggested in Scotland in 1986 because they had three cities where there are a lot of people with HIV infection who are injecting. And very, very straightforward, very simple report said, amongst other things, you must give, you know, make available clean needles and syringes to people who are injecting if they want to if they insist on continue to inject. So That became, it kind of slipped in pretty easily into the UK um, policy scenario. And I was called in by the UK government to evaluate, they set up a pilot program of needle exchange. So I was called in to evaluate that program across the UK in England, Scotland and, and in Wales. And that was rolled out incredibly quickly. And the research was very interesting. You know, who would have known that people who injected drugs were actually quite interested in their health? That's the big thing, you know. These, yeah, yeah. The, the, the image was, you know, these people just don't want to care for themselves. But yeah, but it was a very interesting um engagement. Uh, there were a lot of agencies who started distributing needles and syringes. There was kind of almost like a collaborative engagement because for many people who injected drugs, nobody really spoken to them much in a nice way before, you know, they'd been treated pretty coercively even in drug treatment clinics but suddenly there was this new relationship developing uh, and you can see threads here about my interest in in consumers and users and you know getting engaged with people so the UK response to HIV AIDS was uh, pretty good along with uh, there were good bits in the US were doing it in California there were people in Australia doing it in much of Europe so I eventually became as it were a card-carrying harm reductionist <laughs> and uh, yeah, a lot of my colleagues in public health supported drugs harm reduction supported drug law reform and uh, and so on uh, I eventually retired from academic research around 2004 decided I desperately needed a career change and started to run a small uh, I, I took over an existing advocacy organization called the International Harm Reduction Association. a drugs advocacy organization mainly had two threads. One was to keep harm reduction or to try to get harm reduction integrated into the UN system, the WHO, United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, UNICEF uh, 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 and so on. But it also had a, a human rights thread We might come back to that um, later. Mm -hmm. Um, So I did that for about six years, and then that stopped. And around 2010, which brings us a little bit more up to date, um, I'd heard about e-cigarettes, and I started to get interested in tobacco harm reduction. I thought, well, this just looks like what I've been doing. This looks very much, you know, there hadn't been a good vehicle for tobacco harm reduction. I mean, there were NRT products and you know, pretty boring things. And you were made, you know, you're, you're a patient, really made to look like you're treating yourself. But e-cigarettes seem to be, you know, a great solution. You know, And I thought, well, something really interesting happening here. And at last, tobacco, the field of tobacco smoking had something, you know, a safer delivery system. Which is, what it's about people want to use nicotine for whatever reason. But so um, I, I, I'm very excited about this, as you can tell from my filter article. And I thought that many of my colleagues in public health in the UK would be likewise excited about it because a lot of them had got excited about drug harm reduction. Uh, but no, you know, this when it came to smoking and tobacco, they they had a kind of a different hat on, which was. You don't trust the tobacco industry. All these products are going, you know, you know the the, the kind of the, the story. And so that was um, a lot. There have been a lot of struggles, but we can talk about those um, uh, uh, in a moment. So it was not the easy move that I, you know, here I thought, yeah, you know, it, it doesn't even cost any money to do this because I, for years I'd been, you know, involved in big, International projects where you have millions of dollars to run programs, but tobacco harm reduction costs nothing, doesn't cost governments or state nothing. So, what a perfect bit of public health intervention small p, small h, not big p, h. (laughs) Public health done by people, Mm -hmm. um, but um, it hasn't quite turned out like that, and uh, you know. You've got your problems and problems in other countries, but yeah, we can expand on that. But that's a very, very quick summary. And I mean, you know, I've been involved in lots of different things in the last um, ten years trying to um, promote tobacco harm reduction. But that's kind of uh, five decades, and here we are today. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so I, you know, <laughs> rapidly bringing us to the the present, um, and and I I think I, I we can't avoid having this conversation with you without uh, talking about GFN, uh, and and so um, you know what, uh, for people who don't know what is GFN, and 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 I think we've probably already answered the question: is why is it so consumer focused? But um, for folks who haven't experienced it. Um, what what are what are your hopes and dreams and and, and efforts with with GFN?
2: Well, the the Global Forum on Nicotine. It's our tenth anniversary. Uh, first runs two thousand fourteen. Uh, I'd done a little bit of THR work up to then. I'd been on there was, a, there was a government health committee on tobacco harm reduction, which I'd been on, and I'd done a little bit of trying to get some research going on. Get in safer nicotine product a uh, safer nicotine product into into prisons that with, with paddy costell who's my kind of um buddy in a lot of this we thought well actually what we need is a conference about all these things that are happening and we realized it was had to be a conference on nicotine not on you know there were conferences on smoking on smoking cessation you know what can you do to persuade people to stop smoking what can you do to treat them and so on but you know this was even then i think in 2014 we saw that the nicotine space was rapidly changing you know when you've got a safer product it actually changes the way you view it Um, so we set up this uh, decided i think in the january of 2014 and by june we'd had the first conference with about 120 people or so and it's it, it's grown it's we decided right from the beginning that it would be multi stakeholder fancy term but it means everybody's invited and i'd soon discovered that there are lots of conferences which don't invite people and exclude people You know, there are conferences Mm -hmm. which ban people with links with the industry. And we decided that everybody should be welcome because I suppose it was also a spin over from the work that Patty and I had done on HIV, AIDS and on drug use conferences where we tried to get everybody along. Drug users, police Ministry officials, parliamentarians, educators, treaters, and it's a wonderful events where you'd have everybody in the room, and you know you'd have senior police staff talking to drug users, you know, and in, in a in a sort of a collegial, you know, face, you know, like a non coercive way. I mean, they, they talk in other ways, but you're right. getting them in the room talking about policy issues, human rights issues. So we we imported that into the tobacco smoking, nicotine arena. So it was always multi-stakeholder, getting everybody in the room, consumers, people from industry, people from public health, regulators, parliamentarians, uh, and so on and so forth. But you know, we realized that that also wasn't an easy road. Uh there are people who have joined us along the way and disappeared. There are people who've been banned from attending because there are industry people there. So uh, I mean go into that a little bit later as well. But <laughs> but the, the whole idea, get everybody together and, and talk. And GFN has that kind of space where people who might not otherwise meet can talk in a you know. So one of my abiding memories is the director of a, one of our one of the largest tobacco companies talking to this uh, very he's, he's a very neat straight man <laughs> and uh, talking to this long-haired does region vapor. Now in their lives outside of GFN they would never have met. Mm. You know, so that's a bit of the, the the magic you know there's a lot of you know, a lot of presentations a lot of workshops and a lot of um panel discussions but the idea is like get that dynamic going where you've got um you know people coming together and bouncing around ideas and actually demystifying
1: a lot of things you know yeah 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 and we we, we continue at this week and, and it's been going ongoing. Uh, hey Alex, there...
0: you're breaking up again.
1: I'm sorry, am I coming oh. back?
0: Am I, yes. improving? Yep. Okay. Yeah.
1: I apologize. I don't know what's going on with my internet. But uh, th- this has been a recurring theme, this idea of building consensus, which is not not specific to this issue. Everybody would like to build consensus on things. Um, but you know, the idea of providing a space for all of these, you know, otherwise divergent ideas about the best policies and, and interventions to come together and, and meet on a, in a, on a collegial plane plane. Um, and so I'm, I'm glad that it, you know, GFN has, has at least attempted to serve that purpose as much as, as you can without others, you know, banning people from coming. Um, And uh, I I am moving along here probably quickly. I know we're probably going to skip over a lot of things here, um, but, um, you know, one of the things that you talk about in the article, and and I think, you know, this is related to what we were just talking about is that there is a role for industry to play in all of this. Um, And uh, there's, there's sort of, you know, two wings to this. Um, I I know that the U S experience is certainly different than, than what a lot of other countries are experiencing, but for us, um, you know, we have a regulator who, who at the beginning of of, of PMTA enforcement, uh, has said that they were really just gonna they were gonna prioritize the top five companies by market share, and so you know my my question is like, is that is that a, a the is that the best approach to go about maximizing the benefit from these products? And then a sub question here is. Another thing you mentioned in the article is that, you know, the industry has really they haven't done enough to uh, help the situation in low and middle income countries. And I'll expand that to, you know, generally marginalized communities. Um, What could the industry be doing better? Um, So is is the regulator taking the right approach and what are things that industry can be doing better? Uh,
2: The regulator is not taking the right approach and. uh... (laughs) <laughs> Looking at the U.S. from here in the U.K., it does seem a disaster. You know, you've got a highly legal and bureaucratic structure, which doesn't seem to be doing what it should be doing, which is making products available to compete and drive out, you know, cigarettes. In fact, the the reverse is happening. You've got, you know, the, the you, you, you know, you've got companies going out of business, you've got vape shops going out of business. So it looks very odd because we don't have in the UK this kind of politicised, fervent atmosphere around vaping. You know, we don't have MPs getting up and shouting about kids and, you know, what about the kids and all that stuff. So it looks it looks very odd and I've got a great lot of sympathy, although I don't know a lot of the details. I don't want to get into them. When it comes to companies, I think they are... Two things here. Very early on, I was of the view, and that view hasn't changed, that there are many people in tobacco control who wanted tobacco companies to disappear, cigarette companies. There'd be an end game. They Somehow we could drive them out. We could tax, we could regulate, and BAT and PMI would kind of go out of business. Now, that doesn't happen and, and transformation doesn't happen like that in any field whether it's in your motor vehicles or you know energy and so on so i, I re- realized early on that this would be a way a different kind of end game where these companies became different kinds of companies became nicotine companies rather than cigarette companies and maybe and it's happening with some become more sort of farmer you know because you watch what's happening with PMI and to some extent with BAT now they've got the vaping technology They're looking at uh, you know, delivering other things as, as well. They've got huge expertise now, but that uh, suppose also if you've got big companies in the space you can get products on the shelves everywhere You know, they've got them the marketing power So that's good. But what's not good is the kind of the the monopolization, the, the problems with innovation, the variety, the choice, and also the dynamics of what goes on in vape shops and elsewhere when you've got ordinary folk selling things to ordinary folk. Because tobacco companies will stack them in the supermarkets or stack them in the local news agents but they don't have that personal engagement with people. So what has been fascinating about many aspects of the vape field is, if you like, you've got a whole lot of smoking cessation shops. <laughs> in fact, a vape shop is, is a local health advice shop and okay. you know, it's an outreach shop and it engages. So um, you know, on the one hand, big companies, Mass sale, you know. My, you know, you know, my, my, my sister, or, you know, family member probably wouldn't necessarily want to go to a vape shop, but might pick. You know, you you've got wider appeal. But on the other hand, you you need a very vibrant, um, varied um, market, and anything which drives power into the hands of a few big tobacco companies, it, 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 it is not a good idea.
1: And so, I, for you know, the second part of, of that um, was, uh, you know, what are the things that that you know, to some extent, we're sort of stuck with um, because of the rules, uh, not just in the U.S. but around the world, um, and and in particularly in some LMICs that have reacted very poorly to to the, this new technology. Um, you know, I, I I think we all agree that that the tobacco companies have sort of an ethical obligation to help out and, and protect their consumers. Um, what are there any specific things that, that you think tobacco companies could be doing to, to advance this?
2: Well, they could be doing better to develop products, which are appropriate for the 80% of the smokers in the world who live in poor countries. So, you know, we have highish tech solutions, you know, things with batteries and complicated electronics and need electricity and so on and so forth. Um, But, you know, are these things suitable for smokers in poor countries? Now, in some situations they might be, and you can have cheaper versions, but you do need to find, um, develop other ways of delivering nicotine which are uh, kind of lower tech. you know, like PMI with its fancy ICOS and other heat not burn products. I mean, these are kind of more on the, um, not exactly smartphone end of things, but they're pretty complicated kind of gadgets and so on. So, uh, you know, clearly tobacco companies have gone for richer markets, but 80% of the uh, smokers in the world, one billion smokers in the world, and 80% of them are in low and middle income countries quite serendipitously and i don't think it was planned like this but i think the move into um nicotine pouches might be what you know is going to be appropriate for poorer countries the nicotine pouches are kind of not exactly green but they're greener (laughs) than other nicotine delivery systems they're cheap don't have storage problems um so this might be you know where things begin to open up in africa and in latin america and in parts of asia i don't think tobacco companies planned it that way but it seems to me that these things are going to be very suitable and they seem to be very popular uh including amongst vapors many vapors i know also use pouches and Mm -hmm. i think you know I think you know moving to a nicotine area where people will you know, use different things in different circumstances
0: and um, you don't have to charge those which is good
2: yeah. you but- don't have to charge them there's not much in the way of environmental <laughs> battery. waste yeah. you know uh, there's no batteries they're, they're portable um you know you, you can't break them <laughs>
0: Right, but I was yeah. going to say, and yet we see the World Health Organization coming out against them just as hard as they have with the vape stuff. It's it's crazy.
2: It is crazy, and the World Health Organization is in you know it's a, it's on the wrong side of the curve on this one, as it was with drugs harm reduction. Was it? I remember when we ran a drugs harm reduction conference in Geneva and uh, WHO staff were banned from coming to it. I mean, they were late to the game with drugs harm reduction. Mm-hmm. So, and and they have got the wrong, they have got the wrong message here as well uh, for, <sighs> it's partly funding, it's partly just that prism they've got into, which everything to do with smoking is to sort of hammer down on it. And they can't turn the 90 degrees on it it, everything it, 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 it this kind of stopping a controlling coercive mentality as the solution and it hasn't occurred to people at who that enabling empowering this is actually who language in other areas enabling populations to change empowering populations to change helping you know and that's what E-cigs and other so nicotine products are are about you literally put in a solution into people's hands, you know. Yeah. So, but WHO hasn't got it, and um, it's going to take a long time. WHO is irrelevant to many countries, but for many poor countries, it's very relevant because mm-hmm. they are seen as the um, the fountain of wisdom and the uh, you know if you don't have a national policy, uh, if you don't have capacity to develop to develop national policy, you look to WHO
1: right so i guess it's safe to say that you know for countries that are somewhat um <clears throat> dependent on who for for health advice and, and health information that that uh, is it reasonable to expect that the you know messages about tobacco harm reduction aren't even reaching people on the ground
2: i i think well it's a, diffi- it's a difficult one to answer i think there are a number of things going on You've also got interference in many countries from t- Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids mm. who have their um, um, you know, activities in many poor countries. They help to write legislation. They help to message and provide the, the, the narrative. We've seen a lot of anti-THR stuff from WHO and from the international biannual meeting of the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control. I think in a way what um, works to our advantage is that many health ministries in many countries are not actually very interested in this issue. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, as it seems to be a bizarre thing to say, but if you look at the crude regulatory scenario globally, you've got about 50 or 60 countries now with some sort of regulatory framework you've got 35, 36 who've banned Mm e-cigarettes. Some of those are historical or like legacy bans because they've taken previous legislation and says, oh, that applies to these things. Mm -hmm. Only a few have introduced new bans and you've got about 70 countries who've done nothing. And the done nothing thing is interesting because they've probably got so many other things that are important that getting excited about e cigarettes is probably not very high on the agenda i mean they should get excited about um safe nicotine products because if they're going to bring down you know uh, non-communicable disease levels and so on they need to tackle not just them um, you know, they need to t- t- tackle smoking and in countries where you've got rather nasty oral tobaccos mm-hmm. you know, Um, And they need to to tackle those. But I I sort of suspect that this is not a high priority issue for many poor countries.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, And I I, I'm I'm probably well, touching back on on what you were sort of talking about with Endgame, for those who, who weren't able to, to attend or, or watch Esic summit this year, um, there was a, the sort of the final panel was, uh, included, uh, Mitch Zeller, former director of the center for tobacco products mm-hmm. and cliff Douglas, um, both sort of out on their own now, uh, and cliff Douglas coming from the American cancer society. Um, and, and they had a, had a, a good uh, sort of discussion about end game versus end state, uh, and, uh, I think sort of the, the question I've sort of distilled from all of this was, you know, can ex- can society accept nicotine use as, a, as something that is sort of a minority of people uh, enjoy or otherwise benefit from. And, uh, and, and I think uh, there's always that sort of, how do we get there and how long is this mm-hmm. going to take type of, of question. Um, but I, I think um I, I wanted to save this towards the end to, to leave this in a, in a bit of a hopeful state. Um, but you know from your perspective, what are the milestones? What are the tipping points? What have we seen so far? What do we expect to see going forward? The,
2: I think looking forward 10, 15, 20 years, my, my, my guess, <laughs> i could be completely wrong and i won't be here to see it but um it, it is that we're going to see the normalization of nicotine so it will once you've stripped it away from the smoke then it becomes very hard to sustain objections to its use you can't use terms like addiction you can say people have a strong liking or a dependence some people not everybody uh, but it, it's not It's not an addiction, you know. You know, if you're not hurting yourself, what is the problem? So I think the one scenario is a is a normalization of nicotine use, you know, the continuing um, progress in the ways it can be um, delivered, and so that it doesn't excite cause much more excitement in the public mind than using coffee or something like that and that that's kind of one one, one scenario um sorry i lost the thread a bit of it, but the question was what
1: milestones and tipping points. Milestones, so what, milestones what have we seen so far and then yeah I, we, we talk about tipping points in other areas i'm sort of curious yeah. you know, the sort of a hundredth monkey kind of scenario where like enough people from public health or tobacco control finally come around to, you know, acknowledging the benefit here? Or, you know, what are the actual tipping points?
2: Yeah, I, I think what my optimism is because what's driving this is, is not public health. And it's not regulators, they can stand in the way and they can speed things up, or they can slow things down. But the the, the motor for this is consumers people who found these products they heard them from the from a friends and family or whatever they've tried them and they they like them not everybody does yeah. not everybody succeeds in switching from smoking to an e-cigarette yeah. we need to think a little bit more uh, about that so what's driving it is consumer interest uh, it's a bit like saying how do you get from you know petrol engines to, to electric, or how do you get more people to ride bicycles? we kind of, it's, it's, the state has a role in that, but for the most part, that's gonna be kind of personal choices. So what's driving this is consumers and good products, because clearly there are a lot of things there that people prefer now to smoking. You know they're more interesting than, than than smoking and certainly they prefer them to NRT which is deadly dull and boring you know what could they, uh, you don't uh, early on when I, I I went to a vape fest only me to one vape fest and I don't think I want to go again so I don't vape and I don't smoke but um, this was kind of interesting you don't have NRT fests you know you don't have people <laughs> talking about, well, if so you heard this latest thing from Johnson & Johnson, the, the latest flavour? You know, so it, it's kind of, that facilitates all the, this happening. And even in the UK, which has the most positive approach to, um, you know, you could say it's government policy driving it, but it's not, because the big increase in vaping occurred before the policy developments. Mm-hmm. So consumers are leading this and uh i'm not sure there'll be a tipping point but the trick the milestones are to uh to make it possible for people to make these kinds of um choices so as i say in the article and i said yes now you know public health can get in the way or governments can get in the way or they can try to speed it up um there are some milestones, in a way, uh, the European Union Tobacco Products Directive, which was the first big bit of legislation about e cigarettes, didn't go through smoothly, but in fact there was a big consumer reaction to the initial proposals. A lot of us were unhappy with it at the time, but it actually looks a fairly sensible piece of legislation in comparison with what might be done in other places it's pretty low-key it treats things as consumer products you've still got some countries which are trying to ban flavors and so on and so forth so that's an important milestone Um, New Zealand as far as milestones I'm picking out a kind of countries which have made good decisions in New Zealand Um, but it's not always policy that that drives it Uh, look at Japan look at Scandinavia look at Sweden it wasn't politicians saying, hmm, interesting, let's get behind these things. These were changes driven by people who'd making choices about certain products. So in, in Sweden, with, with snus, uh, now, now in Sweden, um, smoking levels are around 5%, which technically is where you say smoking has all but disappeared. Mm-hmm. lowest lung cancer rates in in europe but the switch to snus the swedish government doesn't actually like to talk about it because <laughs> it was never a policy it was it was done yeah. you know i sort of joke about swedes sitting around the fishing you know fishing and chewing you know sucking on snus but it, so that's my awful caricature but but somewhere along the line Swedish men, uh, Swedish match developed a better product and Swedish men decided they liked it and smoking rates kind of plummet. Snus rates go up, that, that crossover, that substitution chart that we've seen. Um, You know, in Norway, same sorts of substitution charts, you know, smoking going down, snus going up. So Norwegian women under 28, 25, 28, I can't remember exactly, 1% smoke. Mm. But about 14 or 15 percent use snus and 10 years ago it was the other way around so it's not exactly tipping points but um you know what, what what's driving this is that people you know it, it's a it, it you've got to see these things as consumer products and you've got to see smoking it as a kind of consumer issue rather than a treatable issue
1: yeah, <laughs> that was, it's, you know, I, I, I think I had, had recently typed or, or said something um, to somebody, you know, I mean, I, I, maybe I'm sort of mischaracterizing it in my mind is, um, you know, I would think that for, for public health, for people in public health, policymakers and, and lawmakers, but, you know, and especially people in, in, in working for regulators, um, um, you know, it, it seems like, um one of the most frightening things that any of them could hear would be we're going to do this without you uh, exactly and, and, and so it, it seems uh, you know it, yeah. the obvious solution to me is is, it's sort of the get out of the way kind of mentality yeah. but more of you know maybe the uk's approach which is you know establishing guardrails but we don't have to build barricades
2: yeah i think what you just said ring uh, rings a number of bells because. Part of the negativity from people in public health about this is about ownership. Public health people are quite interested in, like, telling us, advising us, persuading us to uh, you know, less sugar, you know, tax on soda drinks, um, you know, you know, the whole panoply of things. Um, uh, but they didn't invent this. You know, if they had have invented it, it would have been a real mess. But uh, they, they, there was a real problem of ownership here. So right from the beginning. All they could do was exit, you know, express concerns, cautions. So, what I what I call fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Yeah. Uh, and in a way, they're right. They they don't have much of a role here because it's it's a public health benefit, but it's not driven by public health. I mean, Dave Sweeney has some good points on, on this as well. You think, like when he talks about refrigerators, huge public health benefit, but that came from some, oh, well, it's not about, the, there's nobody negative about the about refrigerators in public health, but that's not quite the analogy. But, um, you know, some of these things come along and these are solutions to public health problems. And in the case of the this tobacco arena, that got many public health people rather scared of what might be happening.
0: Um, If I could real quick, I wanted to do a quote from your article that was the one that just stood out to me. Uh, And it said that you'd worked on harm reduction and HIV prevention since the late 80s and making drug use and sex safer was both contentious and a struggle. But even that did not face the organized, well-funded opposition endured by proponents of making nicotine use safer. And that was, to me that was very powerful because it really was it's true it's like i mean i remember in the 80s the whole hiv thing and how in because it was like a gay thing and so they forgot all about women in africa and you know uh drug users intravenous drug users and stuff um and i think i wanted to tie that real quick with. The, uh, Chelsea Boyd had a really good article in Our Street uh, a day or so ago, where she talked about when is safe safe enough. When are we going to to give it a pass? And it was, seemed almost like will they ever? Because even though public, big P B H, pu- big H, uh, health didn't come up with this, they sure as heck have the power to stand in front of it and, like, yeah, have said be the blockade. And that is tying into this question that just popped up in our chat where they asked if tobacco control officials are so attached to coercion and the sense of power that they, that many derive from it, that they simply can't give it up when it comes to vaping or tobacco harm reduction in general. So those are all kind of together, but it all kind of is, is they're standing in front of this. Are they doing this on purpose? Is there ever going to be, are they going to ever give up that power and Will will tobacco harm reduction ever will anything ever be safe enough for them? Will ever be good? Because they keep bringing up this, it's not safe. But we all know it's not safe. We just want safer.
2: <laughs> exactly. And in in but public tobacco. health more broadly, safer is a uh, you know it is part of the, the language. I mean, a lot of um, public health is about being safer. But you know, you can't. People can't stop doing some things, but you can make things safer. You know, seat belts, or oh, oh, you know, it's a good, mm-hmm. good um, com- comparison. Uh, I think will they give it up? I mean, who are who are the people who make an Australia's obviously gone down a bad route where you've got a <laughs> de facto prohibition. You've got this crazy idea that uh, okay, you know, you can have these things, but they've got to be prescribed by a doctor.
0: Okay, well, crazy. But go buy the deadly thing on the corner sense. at the gas station. Europe's
2: pretty good. I mean, China's introduced some new controls over e six in terms of flavors and so on. Um, the, the the main public health, well, they're, they're the countries, there are countries in, the, in, in Europe where the public health agencies and what Clive Bates calls the body parts organisations, you know, the foundations, which are the hearts, the lungs, you know, the, the, um, make a lot of noise. In the UK, they're all a bit quiet. I think they just kind of um, lost interest a little bit in it. And Public Health England, which was the agency driving this, it did some good work to bring the big cancer organizations, health organizations, and so on, um, on board. I think you've got a bigger problem in the the US, partly because of the scale of funding for these organizations, Um, uh, and the funding from Bloomberg as well, which goes into many of them. So, uh, you know, the campaigns, organized by the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids, and, and so on, so there's a lot of money going around to sell a particular narrative. And um, will they give up? I don't know. <laughs> That's a difficult one. I the US is very concerned about kids, isn't it? This isn't really a narrative which is... Um,
0: no. You know, and they're, they're the, Davids. the kids? You know? That's what's funny. It's, we're just talking about all the money that they have, but they still yeah. look at themselves as being the Davids to, you know, we're apparently the Glias in
2: this. Oh, really? <laughs> Well we did um, I, you, you were part of this, but we did a survey of consumer organizations, mm. and the total funding annual funding for all of the fifty two consu- grassroots consumer organizations you know, like yours and you know like the you know, national grassroots consumer organizations, it's about mm. three hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year in total for all of
0: us for all, for all of you.
1: <laughs>
2: all of I, you.
0: I
1: know just from that. And we make
2: only, there are pay. only 13 people in those 52 organizations who have any sort of paid position. It's all volunteer stuff. You know, like if it's Proveo, Mexico, or you know, the, the organizations in Latin America or the you know the new nicotine alliance in the UK. It's all done on a shoestring. You know, it's yep. not like the 160 million dollars that Bloomberg. Gave to campaign for tobacco-free kids to um, argue against flavors. It's not not like the twenty million that Bloomberg gives to the University of Bath to um, try to stigmatize a lot of people working in the field. Um, You know, big sums of money going into the you know into the opposition, and you you suffer more than other parts of the world from that.
1: Yeah, and unfortunately, it's the you know when when America. Sneezes. The rest of the world catches a cold. <laughs> yes. like the same is true for bad policy that we export to the rest of the world. Yeah. Um, and before we get too far away, I did want to uh, acknowledge and maybe you know put it to you uh, the the Cambridge yeah. Citizens for Smokers' Rights asking about um, snooze and <clears throat> does snooze cause oral cancer and what are the oral cancer rates in in Sweden? Um, before I pitch it to you, Jerry, I'll say. Uh, we have information about snus on our website. Uh, uh, to smoke and uh, encourage you to why wow. got you here? All right, you're
0: breaking um, up again. Um, <laughs> we do have a whole section on our website on smokeless tobacco and oral tobaccos and stuff. So we encourage you to please go check that out on cassat.org.
2: Yeah, the. Uh, Sweden now has studies going on for 20 or 30 years, large population-based studies. And when you aggregate those, it's very hard to detect any major cancer problems with SNUS. So uh, it's, you know, people have been digging around for, you find some individual studies, but I think there are particular aspects of those studies where you find a slightly raised level, but the SNUS gets a pretty good, um, you know, bill of health um, from these large studies, and you've got your fact sheet. So w- we've got a fact sheet on snus as well. We just looked at you know at snus, and it's um, you know th- th- this has been very well, very well studied. So uh, and U.S. smokeless, likewise, you know, sort of um, probably underrated in the U.S. as a harm reduction product. Oh yeah, um, for sure. A lot of people and, don't
0: yeah, but, realize. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say that a lot of people don't realize that smoke-free tobacco is already significantly less risk for people's health than smoking. Sure. And then if yes. you take snus on top of that, there's over 30-some-odd years of studies, and they have not been able to prove that snus causes any disease, not yes. not just with cancer, oral cancer, but any disease. There's a couple yes. outlier studies there, but mm. it's, it's pretty much as safe as coffee. So, I mean, it's...
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and this is where the the label the, the, the naming of things is important because most of the international uh, WHO's work is all about tobacco. Yeah, you know, tobacco-free world. Well, no, you know, you've got to actually work out what it is that's the the problem. And, mm-hmm. You know, the problem is smoking. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, know, there, and, are, and... there are certainly some tobaccos which are chewed with other substances in India and so on, right. which are harmful. Uh, but you know, they're mixed in with all sorts of things, and it's very difficult to disentangle what is the tobacco, whether it's the slate line, the betel nut, or the ereca nut, or whatever in it, which is um, associated with adverse health uh, effects. And it's entirely wrong to call, though they, they, they're called smokeless tobaccos in a lot of the research papers, but it's entirely yeah, wrong to call that. You know, It's a mixed bunch of vegetable matter and herbs with tobacco <laughs> it's not a very technical way of describing it, but they're wrongly called smokest uh, tobaccos. But
0: um, this plutonium but, yeah. cigarette with some tobacco in it is a tobacco thing that's killing you. It's not yeah. the plutonium; it's the, yeah. it's the tobacco.
1: <laughs> and, and just to, to sort of put a, a, a final point on this, if I if I can, um, uh, you know, the uh, Swedish matches, uh, General Products we uh, were the first product in the United States to be granted a modified mm. risk order, um, mm. and there are four, four different flavors, mm. I believe, that have been authorized. Um, mm. And also, I think recently, Copenhagen, um, the, the um, it's just Copenhagen, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to use. It's, it's one product. But Copenhagen recently received uh, modified risk orders, okay. if I remember correctly. So yeah. we now have American Moist Smokeless and Swedish Snooze in America with modified risk orders. Um, mm-hmm. Which is certainly a step in the right direction. It is. Um, certainly. And and in the in the final few minutes here, I I, I promised you before we started I would ask this, um, and so I did want to squeeze it in. Um, and it's not the the positive high note that I wanted to end on, but maybe maybe it is. Who knows? Um, in, in in the United States, we have seen this influx of, of fentanyl in the drug supply, uh, and it's been responsible for um, you know drug poisonings uh, for, for more than a decade. I I think, you know, the first time I heard about it was when I was in treatment for substance use disorder in the mid two thousands. Um, and, and it was, it was fentanyl or was other things that were, was contaminating the drug supply. But now this narrative has moved into, you know, essentially you can put fentanyl in everything and nobody knows where it is. And specifically in vapor products, um, we've even seen a a tobacco company in the United States, jump on the sort of hysteria bandwagon, In in their efforts to sort of uh, demonize uh, 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 single use vapor products, disposables, uh, and and drum up more uh, energy funding or whatever for enforcement against these products, Um, my my take on this is that it's a bit of a mistake to be stigmatizing vaping and fentanyl because there's there is a potential for there's more potential for drugs harm reduction there. Um, And I'm curious if you've heard anything about this, what you might know about it and thoughts for, you know, even more harm reduction applications.
2: Wasn't there a crazy story a few days ago about the Chinese might be putting fentanyl into um, disposable vapes? There was some bizarre, rather paranoid view of what's going on. Um, Yeah. okay. Two things. One is it's another thing that's been used. Against vapes you know just as all the muddle around uh, Ivali you know mm-hmm. uh, and, and so on so uh, yeah it, it, it's been used to bash vapes but it, it, in principle if there are drugs well, not the right word drugs of abuse but uh, difficult drugs which can be vaporized, volatilized and delivered through in some way uh, in something similar to a, you know, a vaping delivery system. Uh, that is going to be preferable to people injecting those drugs or using other versions of those drugs which might be contaminated in, in some way. So as a kind of a, looking with my sort of drug harm reduction hat on, if you can clean up the delivery system uh, then that could be a, a, a great advantage. I mean, we had some discussions about that way back about whether uh, uh, the, the problem is many, many m- heroin, for example, it doesn't volatilize at so a low temperature, has to go to about seven or eight hundred degrees. Uh, so it, it wouldn't work in a vaping um, yeah. delivery system. But in, in principle, uh, yeah, making drug use safer is. A good idea, and if it, if some drugs like that can be vaporized and made safer, there, some possibilities there for um, uh, drugs harm reduction um, services. You know, in in um, it's not quite the same, but in many European countries and in Australia, you have I don't know about the US, you have drug testing programs at events and festivals and and so on to so just tell people what it is they're, they're taking. So making drug use safer for people who will in any case be using those drugs um, is in principle a a good idea but it's a difficult area because you know it can be used to bash vaping yet another thing you know people on an environmental bandwagon over disposables and you have the you know so is it just a scare story or is there something um, interesting here in terms of drugs harm reduction is the question yeah uh,
0: I have a positive thing that I'd like to ask him to end on.
1: Okay. I'll Uh give you the last word then.
0: Okay. Um, what I would like to ask is you talked a lot, or you spoke a lot in your article about, uh, consumers and getting consumers at the table. And what Mm -hmm. I'd love to know, and we have a hard time with that. I mean, just trying to, I mean, you know, getting to GFN even is kind of, (laughs) it's over there. Um, but, uh, (laughs) but, um, just, you know, with, with, uh, legislators and all that kind of stuff, they don't look at us as being a stakeholder. They look at us as being, you know, they're patting us on the head. And what I'm wondering is what is GFN doing to get more consumers involved?
2: Well, we do, um, set aside money to fund people to come. We have a small pot of money to bring people would persuade others to bring people as well um, but yeah you know consumer organizations are under-resourced and often as you just indicated patronized um, which doesn't doesn't I don't think happens in other fields you don't um Patronize cancer organizations, patient organizations. This is a very strange area where there's a lot of suspicion around um, vaping organizations. You know, you're all in the pay of big tobacco, aren't you? Or you know, like it's, uh, if only you know, you'd have a bigger budget. But,
0: uh, well, I, I,
1: no, I'll, I'll, no. I mean, I, I have no no qualms about disclosing that we we accept yeah. donations from yeah. the industry. We've taken donations from tobacco companies, but we're not we're not yeah. getting you yeah. know yeah. blue it, bucks it's no, difficult no. for
2: many because that closes a lot of doors um maybe not so in the us but in in um in many other countries that no that, it does here
0: too
2: it closes <laughs> doors um yeah you have to be taken seriously uh yeah and um uh, and <sighs> it's still early days in many places I mean, many consumer organizations are run by a handful of people volunteers make a big noise and can have an impact and that I think is the if you like the final message, because we've seen that consumers have had an impact had a big impact on European legislation. Uh, they send in consulta- answers to consultations, they legislative challenges, and you know you've always got to be there making politicians know that you're looking over their shoulder at what they do. You won't always get what you want, but um, sometimes you will.
1: Sometimes you get what you need.
0: <laughs> that, that came in my head, too. <laughs>
1: thank you. Well, excellent. I Thank you for joining us. And, and uh, I'll, I'll take it out. Uh, Michael Redfern uh, noted in the chat that uh, if you are a consumer and can't make the trip to Warsaw, um, that the GFN online programming is available for free. Uh, I've certainly taken advantage. Uh, of I that. forgot that. Jerry. Yes,
2: it's free. <laughs> and this, and this year it'll be online in Spanish and Russian.
1: Fantastic.
0: Wow. Awesome. Excellent. So okay. broadening,
1: broadening the engagement and and yep. everybody, everybody participating. Um, Jerry, we very much appreciate the work that you've done, the work that you're doing. Um, mm-hmm. I look forward to watching GFN from the comfort of my home this year. <laughs> uh, and hopefully, hopefully uh, I will work up the courage to travel to Warsaw. Um, and, um, and so with that, I I think we'll, (laughs) we'll round out the hour with the standard CASA outro of if you haven't joined CASA, you're doing everything wrong. Uh, go to (laughs) CASA.org and join while you're there. If you find this content useful, uh, or just important, even if it's not for you, uh, please kick down a few bucks. Um, like I said, you know, we do get donations from industry, but. Uh, it's not as much as you think it is, uh, and uh, and as 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 Jerry's group has, has has demonstrated, all of us, all of these consumer organizations are very underfunded. Um, and uh, if you uh, if you don't have five bucks or something to kick in, uh, just just get involved. Uh, do the reading, the writing, and and send the messages to lawmakers. When we when we tap you on the shoulder, um, and people around the world, hopefully, have similar opportunities to get engaged. Um, we have, uh, merch on our site while you're there, check out the store. You can advocate in style with all the fancy t-shirts and stuff that we've, uh, we've designed Danielle Jones. Thank you very much. Uh, follow us on social media. We're on the, uh, Facebooks and Twitters and Instagram, and you can find this podcast where you find all of your podcasts, uh, stream, stream, cl- not Streamyard, yard, soundcloud, <laughs> <laughs> Jesus SoundCloud um uh spotify and of course on youtube um i think i did all of the things
0: i think did i get all the things okay fantastic i was trying to pay attention to the chat so anyhow again thank you for taking your time with us on uh this saturday and um i guess we'll see everybody in two weeks
1: yeah see y'all in